0: Providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses.
1: Thanks, Susan, and good afternoon, everyone. It's uh, great to have so many people joining us live on the Walker webcast today. A couple comments about the markets. I'm also still waiting for our guests to jump in and join me, so I'm going to ad-lib here for a moment as Keith hopefully comes in and joins me. A couple of things. We all saw the inflation report this morning that came out and saw that CPI on the month uh, was down by 20 basis points over expectations. And the markets have obviously reacted positively to that 10 years down at 277, I believe about right now. And the Dow is up almost 450 points. I would point out this past week, we put on the Walker webcast a replay of my opening remarks at our summer conference out in Sun Valley, Idaho. And in those remarks, I said a couple of things. One, you've got to be in these markets to take advantage of these markets. And so when we see the 10-year tighten by 10 basis points this morning, right after the inflation report, those people who are ready to go and do a refinancing or do an acquisition loan are in a good position to take advantage of these markets. Those who are on the sidelines right now aren't able to take care of those, uh, take advantage of those. And so to those people who have been sitting on the sidelines, and we've seen plenty of people over the past couple of months sit on the sidelines, welcome back to the markets I think one of the other interesting things that came out this morning, Rick Santelli on uh, CNBC was saying, basically, if you're waiting for Jerome Powell to come out and make a public service announcement that he's only going to raise by 50 basis points rather than 75 basis points on the next time around, um, A, good luck, and B, you're going to miss the opportunity. As we have said a number of times, what we're dealing with right now, albeit painful, as we see rates go up and we see inflationary pressures hitting everyday Americans across the country in their back pocket. This is all predicted. We know what the Fed's doing to try and bring inflation back in line. And we know exactly what the impact of their rate raises are going to have. The real question is whether we get dunked into a recession or whether we can have a soft landing. And this morning, Steve Leisman on CNBC said, right now, I think we're probably over a 50% probability that you have a soft landing, whereas that number was significantly lower previously. I saw Keith jumped in and then I saw him go away. So I'm not sure whether he is on or there he comes. There he is. Morning. I didn't want
0: to interrupt you. I, oh, I, no, I was, I was, great. I was no. looking forward to I was
1: I was ad living and, and, and making up time waiting for you to jump in. All right. So all. Let me introduce you, Keith, and then we'll dive into our conversation. I have to say I've I've had now 110 or 115 guests on the Walker webcast and I've rarely been as excited to dive into material after having done a lot of work on you and what you've written and what you've said. And so let me get to the bio quick, and then we'll we'll get Mm -hmm. to it. So Keith Ferrazzi is an American entrepreneur and recognized global thought leader in the relational and collaborative sciences. As chairman of Ferrazzi Greenlight and its Research Institute, he works to identify behaviors that block global organizations from reaching their goals and to transform them by coaching new behaviors that increase growth and shareholder value. Keith has introduced a new transformational operating system he calls Co-Elevation that leads to exponential change and value. Formerly, he was chief marketing officer of Deloitte and Starwood Hotels. He is the number one New York Times bestselling author of who Got, Who's Got who Got Your Back? Never Eat Alone, leading without authority in his newest book, Competing in the New World of Work, as well as a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal and a bunch of other publications. So, Keith, I watched the TED Talk you gave, and you introduced yourself in two distinct ways, and I want to read those two introductions. So, intro number one. Hi, I'm Keith. I went to Yale, Harvard Business School. I was the youngest chief marketing officer in a Fortune 500 company. I wrote a number one best-selling New York Times book. I'm chairman of Farazi Greenlight, and I play polo. So, that's intro one. And here comes intro two. Hi, I'm Keith. My dad was a steel worker. My mom was a cleaning lady. I grew up poor. Most of my life I spent in classrooms I didn't think I belonged in due to my insecurity. I am my own glass ceiling. The only way I can bust through it is with a little transparency, a little authenticity, and some self-disclosure to people I love so they can help me from time to time. So a couple questions on that. First, which Keith would we all rather speak to? I think I can answer that which Keith will show up for this Walker webcast is number two. And then the final one, which I think is a really important one. Could you give the second intro without having the confidence from the first intro?
0: Hmm. Great question. First of all, I guess it would all depend upon how much you like polo. (laughs) So the first introduction was the introduction that a young man would have given any opportunity he could based on not feeling like you deserve to be in the room. And it's so shocking how I see some version of that introduction show up in some of the most amazing and accomplished people, even today. Yeah. But sure. I mean, one could argue that it's easier to have the second introduction when some folks in the room know your achievements. And yet at the same time, you know, there's, uh, I I was sitting with I don't know if you know the George Kaiser Foundation, but George Kaiser is an 80-year-old man in Tulsa, Oklahoma, billionaire who has invested a significant portion of his wealth to create a city, a little town, Tulsa, that would absolutely be far and above the most progressive, technologically advanced city in the world. And nobody knows this. And so my point the other night at dinner was, we've got to tell this story. We've got to get it out there. You've got to be less humble and less shy about the good works so that we can extrapolate the work. You know you know who's a, an amazing person that I think was a great example of doing it right? was my dear friend who's passed away Tony Shea. Tony Shea was a, a unicorn founder. He was a, a man who was one of the great thought leaders in the future of business and human capital. He was an entrepreneur. He was an artist. He was so many things. And you would sit with him with the most humility and the most, and you would, and he would blend into a crowd, but he was the greatest evangelist for his works, but more importantly for his mission, not for himself. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to be evangelists for our missions and not for ourselves.
1: So when I heard you talk about being named the youngest partner ever at Deloitte, and the story about you getting that job is a great one. I maybe we'll get into that later on. But you said that fear and scarcity drove you to that job. And as I think back on your childhood and having two loving parents and they put you through the very best schools that they could get you into, yeah. you were an exceptional student, you were a national debate champion, you went to Yale, you went to Harvard. What
0: hmm. on God's earth were you fearful of? Hmm. Well, uh, first of all, you know who you know who told me that? I'll do a little name dropping, but I think you'll think it's funny. The person who sat next to me, it was, it was at a time when I was the chief marketing officer of Deloitte and Forbes used to have these wonderful dinners where if you were an advertiser, if they wanted you to be an advertiser, they would invite you to the Forbes mansion and the publisher and some of the editors would sit around the table with people of influence and people that they wanted to. Get into our pocketbooks, and as a as a marketer, as the chief marketing officer, I was sitting next to a young entrepreneur in real estate from New York City named Donald Trump, and he and I were chatting at length that evening, and it was him that actually said to me, "He said, you know, the number one driver of anybody's success is insecurity." Anyway, I'm just going to leave it at that. So as I look back on my life, I had a lot of things that were ingrained at a very early age in my mind that I'm still working to overcome. And I know this, I was literally just writing a piece this morning about foster care. I have foster children and overall I have six non-biological boys and the foster kids have been particularly challenging as opposed to others that I've, I've I've adopted through non-foster care, but foster kids in a very early age were abused emotionally, physically sometimes sexually, unfortunately. These children in that abuse, it was what was notched into their brain was a lack of trust. Well, they, they spend their entire life avoiding people. They spend their entire life distrusting people. Not a surprise that 80% of the US prison population came from foster care. Now that is an, that is an obscene example of what I'm about to share, but every single one of us have an in, in etched insecurities in our brains. That yield behaviors that don't serve us, right my son, when he came into our house, fought me violently and said, "You will never be my effing father, but what was really going on was a was a sense of distrust and fear that i would I would be a, I would hurt him if he finally trusted me like he did his original parents. look, I could go through and i've 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 've worked in therapy to understand this I can go through and give you the poor kid in the rich school you know in a in a formative age that didn't feel and got teased that didn't feel I deserved to be there right and then of course a young man who was wanting to be president of the united states and you know was born into a catholic family in southwestern conservative blue collar pennsylvania who in my teenage years i started realizing that perhaps i was gay so You take these kind of etched fear, shame, insecurity of a young man and not a surprise that I would do one of two things. And it's been very interesting. I've always wondered why some people, when faced with that kind of insecurity, collapse and become very small. And some of us become very big and grandiose and overcoming. And my got lucky in some regards and went the ladder and became to try to overcome. But it's still there. I mean, there were when I was at Yale, I may be the only kid at Yale one summer who was homeless because I was at Yale and I wanted one of those snooty jobs that all the rich kids had. So and the only way I could afford to do it was I couldn't afford rent in the city that I was working in. So I lived out of my car while I did that. And I for two dollars a day. I could eat. And that was by buying a beer at a happy hour. And that allowed me to eat off of the buffet of those little cocktail weenies. That was my only meal a day. Right. So for two bucks a day, I worked for free for a summer and lived in my car. And I don't think there's any other Yalies that can have that, that have that story. Well, actually that's not true. I'm sure there are, but, um, but by the way, Willie talk about, you were talking about the economy. I still have that little tape in my head that plays that says can I pay the rent and look and as the people who are listening it's okay you will never fully eradicate your insecurities your fears your your abhorrent natural reactions the question is are you a seeker and are you are you committed to constantly being more grounded and more elevated and and, and are you committed i mean i have had I wrote something recently about the 10 things that, that have both grounded me and elevated me the most, the 10 activities in, as a seeker in my life that have fundamentally transformed my life to be able to show up in a more authentic way. But it doesn't mean that it's, 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 it's ironed it all out.
1: So one of the things you talk about, Keith, in your book as far as co-elevation is the community that we create around us. And you talk about it in both diversity, and inclusion, then also in co-elevation and how teams can work very well with one another. And one of the great stories I've heard you tell from a community standpoint and that we are all, yes, we have our own successes as it relates to studying hard and getting good grades or getting a job, but that various people have a huge role in our both cohort of people and then helping us move along. And one of the great stories I've heard you tell is Mrs. Poland at the golf club when you were 16 years old and caddying. Can you tell the Mrs. Poland into Representative Mirtha's story? Because you just mentioned there a kid who wanted to be president of the United States. I mentioned in my intro to you that you won the National Debate Championship. Just go to the Mrs. Poland because the story about your dad and showing up early is so compelling as it relates to how Mrs. Poland and yeah. Mirtha had such a
0: role in your future career. Yeah, thank you. So maybe I'll punctuate it as well with a few lessons for those who are, are listening in. One of the things I realized when I was young, This is, so remember, I'm the kid from an immigrant Steelworking family whose dad was unemployed because the seventies, the steel industry was crashing down around us. It's what really was the core essence of my mission in life, which was to grow up and make sure. And my commitment as a kid was: I will grow up and I will fix American manufacturing. I will make sure that that families are not disadvantaged because I grew up in an era where we couldn't afford gas to get to work. I mean, that's the period of time that we were in back in the seventies and. My dad said, it's Keith, it's time to go to work. And it was 10. <laughs> and so I went to work at a local country club. My old man said something to me. He said, Keith, show him the golf course a half an hour early." And I'm like, Pop, there's nobody there. Like, why would I do that? And he would just repeat himself. And I, I always joke that I called that immigrant Tourette's. He just blurt shit out that uh, I didn't understand, but it's okay. It wouldn't matter. Uh, I didn't have to understand it. Just had to listen to it. So I show up at the golf course half an hour early. And as a result, for those of you who aren't golfers, I, I noticed things like that the greens were cut this morning. So they're, they're going to be running faster today or that the pin is in the beginning uh, at, the, at the front end of a particular green. So I, my golfer would need it's a blind dog leg and my golfer would need less of a club to get there, whatever. And and there was a woman you mentioned, Mrs. Poland, who was the best woman golfer in the country club. And she had me as her candy one day. After the session, she asked me if I'd caddy for her again. And it's like, wow, that's a big deal. Because normally I would sit up there maybe five days a week. I would go up and sit at the caddy club and I'd maybe get out once or twice. There's a lot of people out there needing the work. And we'd make 20 bucks a day, which is the same amount of money my mom made, 20 bucks a day for cleaning houses the entire day. And I was able to get 20 bucks and bring that back to the family. So we went around the next day. She said the same thing. She said, hey, would you caddy for me again? I'm like, wow, this is amazing. I just want to keep my head down and do a good job. Well, the third day, she really floored me a bit and and took me back. She started asking me very personal questions, which I didn't want to answer. It's very similar to my son, who, in a sense, I just wanted to keep my head down, do the right job. I was afraid I'd screw this up. I didn't want to engage with this woman. Plus, I didn't like rich people. Rich people scared me. Their kids made fun of me at school. You know, I like, I just didn't, I wanted to. Get my job done, get my 20 bucks. And she kind of pressured me. And she said, Keith, you know, like, what do you want to do with your life? Like, why is this lady asking me? This? She said, you should come home and meet my son. I'm like, I don't want to meet your son. Ultimately, she going kind to of warm me down. And she said, Keith, come on, what do you want to do with your life? I said, well, you're going to laugh. But my dad, like many immigrant you know, fathers, even today, I'm sure, said, if I work real hard, study real hard one day, I can do anything. I could be president of the United States. And really, in my core, I wanted to be governor of Pennsylvania, like my mentor, Dick Thornburg. I wanted to be governor of Pennsylvania, and I wanted to come back and fix American manufacturing. That's what a 10-year-old kid thinks. And she said, yes, you could, and I, and I would vote for you. Well, it wasn't long after that, two weeks, that she had the local congressman in her force, Congressman Mertha, that you, you represented, who, as we were walking around, took me under his wing. And uh, gave me advice. Said I should get involved in speech and debate. Said I, he'd be willing to open up his congressional library in, in, in Greensburg, which is I was at Latrobe Country Club at the time. To and he'd be able to. He'd be willing to even. And he did. I mean, I went up there. And when I joined speech and debate, it was Lincoln Douglas debate. And I had some nutty problems. And I went up there. And he sat with me. And he gave me advice and counseling and coaching. Anyway, the long and the short that is what got me into Yale. I won the national speech debate tournament, etc. But For your listeners, I would ask the rhetorical question, why did they do that? But particularly, why did Mrs. Poland do that? Why in the world would she spend the time to do that? And it's, and the answer, you know, if I ask an audience, I never get the right answer. Because by the way, I've asked Mrs. Poland this question. People tell me, and I'm sure it's contributory to the truth. People say, oh, you know, she wanted to pay it forward. She was from the wrong side of the track. She saw something in you. Yeah. But I talked to Mrs. Boland, and she said, Keith, this is real simple. You took two strokes off my golf score. So my advice to anybody, there's two lessons here. My first lesson that I'm going to land with you is if somebody is important to you, if they are important to opening doors to you, if they are important to your success in any way, then damn it, you show up half of an hour early at the golf course to serve them. right? And that's true of any employee you have. That's true of your most important customers. That's true if you're in sales. That's true of the marketing person who's going to be providing you sales support or the technical person or the ecosystem of individuals that you've got to marshal to serve that client, whatever. That's, you know, if you're the CIO, that's what you've got to do to your business leaders inside of the business. You got to show up damn half an hour early at the golf course. They've got to feel it and, and taste that degree of differentiation and passion for their success, not yours. Now, the other thing that's that's core to this lesson is that I did not have nepotism. I was jealous that that of these rich kids that got to go to the country club and hang out at the pool, and I was working the caddy yard. I used to actually, because some of them went to school with me and would make fun of me. I would climb. Oh God, it's just I haven't thought of this in a long time. I would climb up the back of a very steep hill to get to the caddy yard. I mean, I'm talking about literally climbing a steep dirt hill. I would climb up the back to get to the caddy yard instead of having my parents drop me off in the parking lot and walking past the pool where my friends were because I was so embarrassed and ashamed that they would see me caddying where at the country club where they were members. And what, what I realized was nepotism, which I wasn't born into, can be manufactured. Nepotism, if it had its core, and I have six boys that I would do anything for. Nepotism is when you have a deep relationship bonded from family or whatever that allows an individual to disproportionately open doors and opportunities for somebody. You can do that. That was the CEO of Deloitte for me. It was like my father. The building of the relationship opens doors to success and the building of their relationship needs to be born from generosity and service. Now, once you show up, with generosity and service and you arrest somebody's attention because they got a lot of shit going on, then you follow that with real intimacy, accelerated vulnerability, be your authentic self so that then the loyalty becomes authentic and connected, right? But it's a beautiful ecosystem. And what you're talking about is the formation, the foundation of what I call co-elevating relationship. Now, on top of that, you have accountability that needs to be butt-kicking You have candor that needs to be transparent and tough. Those two things are afforded because of the underpinning of the intimacy and the generosity. That ecosystem of intimacy, generosity, yielding candor and accountability, that's what we coach executive teams to. Most executive teams do not have a proactive approach to building those kind of co-elevating relationships among the team. And as a result... CEOs are spending way too much time running around playing whack-a-mole in their business when the ecosystem of the team, the team itself should be owning each other's success, each other's accountability, each other's energy. So
1: So that issue on candor, Keith, is a really important one. And you talk about the importance of candor. Closing off on Mrs. Poland, later on that summer, after you got to know her, she was a heavy set woman. And she would sit down and smoke a pack of cigarettes after the round every day. No,
0: during. Basically, it was a cigarette per hole.
1: Okay, cigarette per hole. And she'd sit down and have, for all practical purposes, a Big Mac after the round. And one day you threw away the cigarettes. You handed her a tab to anyone who's who I'm dating there. Old enough, right? And old to enough remember to what a tab is. It's a diet.
0: Coke. based diet Coke is basically what it is. Yeah.
1: And, and your comment was that. Well, I'll tell, I'll tell
0: you the story. So, so, but,
1: but, but if, if I can, let me just jump through this for a second, because I think that this is what's so important. You talk a lot about the fact that you were able to do that because you earned her trust. You earned the ability to have candor with her. Yeah, she
0: was pissed off at me. I, I, I crushed her cigarettes and I gave her a salad and a tab instead of a hamburger and a hot dog and a chocolate milk and a Coke. And it was because. I had earned the right to make her realize that my holding her accountable, an adult, right. Who was paying me. I was holding her accountable for something she cared about because she would tell me she cared about it, but then she'd turn around and not serve herself. And so what's powerful is that, and that solidified, I think our relationship, she became like a mom to me. I'd even call her mom. I'd be, you know, like on the golf course, I call her mom and she got my parents jobs and she took me on vacations, and I did become best friends with her son, Brett. That relationship was born from exactly that formula I mentioned to you earlier. Intimacy and generosity. Starting with generosity, take two strokes off her golf score. Now she gives me permission to get to know me better. I want to be president, blah, blah, blah. Right? Then my candor and accountability layered allowed that to be layered on top because if you don't have all four of those there are so many damn companies they're midwest polite where they've got the care but it's but polite means political if you are just polite in an organization and you don't have the strength of your conviction and the ability to challenge each other respectfully then all that shit will come out in passive aggressive political statements shadow conversations i know so many teams the average candor on a team of zero to on a scale of zero to five, the average candor in a team is two point four, and that is unacceptable. That is stealing from shareholders, like cheating on an expense account. And we need. And by the way, that that basis of a co-elevating relationship needs to exist in all of our relationships. Do you know that? And this goes back fifteen years when I wrote "Who's Got Your Back." The average individual in America would say that only, that, that no one has their back. Fifty percent of Americans say that no one has their back, defined as deeply generous, fully committed, et cetera, relationships. Of those who say that, 60% are married, right? So why do we have divorce rates the way we do? Because they're not co-elevating relationships. That's not the social contract that we're seeking. And what I wanted to do when I wrote Leading Without Authority and more recently Competing in the New World of Work is to awaken people to how easy it is to raise your standard for the the type of a co-creative, elevating relationship. I call them a co-elevating relationship in all parts of our life. In all parts of our life.
1: So you mentioned your dinner sitting next to former President Trump and it reminds me of your intimacy dinners. And intimacy Mm -hmm. dinners get you to that point where you can find that candor and also that intimacy with people that you work with and know. Can you describe for our listeners what an intimacy dinner is or how you set them up?
0: Yeah. So the night before I coach an executive team And so that's what we do for a living. We coach teams. We make a commitment to a group of individuals. Most likely they're the the CEO of the company and the the team that reports to them or a functional leader or sometimes a critical project team. We make a commitment to that team to radically accelerate their ability to to find growth and to achieve their business outcomes. Um, The night before we do the coaching, which is going to be a tough day of accountability, a tough day of candor, real peer-to-peer truth-telling, we do an intimacy dinner. And an intimacy dinner depends upon the psychological safety of the team that I'm starting with. Sometimes I'm with a team where there is eviscerating relationships within them already. And if I dove in and started to create a kumbaya bonding experience, I'd be perceived as some jackass from, from Los Angeles. So in that case, I will do something innocuous, like a simple, okay, everybody, let's go around. What's, what's going on right now? Sweeten your lives. What's going on sour? I call it a sweet and sour. So simple. But when I lead the conversation, I would start with a vulnerable share on my own. And I would seek vulnerability, right? It, by the way, in a virtual world, you need to be doing these exercises. Even though it's not dinner, you need to be doing these exercises with your teams regularly. Because you don't have the walk down the hallway. You don't have the lunch conversations that you used to do. If you're in a room, you snap your fingers and you can accelerate. The relationship score of a team on a scale of zero to five is usually a 2.8. If you go virtual remote hybrid, that goes down to a 2.2, unless you make purposeful relational movement and these practices like I'm talking about. And if that's the case, it goes up to 4.4. It goes better than it was when you were just walking down a hallway using small talk. So in a room, you could do a sweet and sour, right? In a room, you could do something called an energy check-in, which is everybody go to the chat right, right now, zero to five. What is your energy these days and why? And you'll see people say it's a two because of this, this, and this, right? The ability to make that bridge of empathy. Now, the intimacy question that I love is, This is the deepest, most intimate question that I ask a team when I'm starting to work with them. If I feel I've gotten to the place where they can trust each other, what experience of your past do you think defines who you are today? Now, that's when I would normally, and I look, I come from an era in the 60s, you know, I was born in 66, 70s and 80s, when the, when me being my authentic self was not at all acceptable. You couldn't, you didn't, there wasn't a single role model in the world. There wasn't an executive. There wasn't a politician who was a outwardly LGBT individual, didn't exist. So me and my, all my aspiration of wanting to be, you know, a great man in service of my family and being a strong Christian, those two things did not mesh with being out and and proud. So I say this because when I would share early on as a coach, I'm embarrassed to say, i would only share the formative moment of being a poor kid going to rich schools and the shame of that which when i wrote never eat alone is all i shared you know by the time today i can show up and i still have that tape that plays that says will they judge me will they not accept my message can i not be of service here if i'm my authentic self right that still goes on today as i said we still have these these etched fears and insecurities in our brains but as a leader we need to be more vulnerable. During the pandemic, we uncovered the fact that our leaders were vulnerable. They shed tears in front of their teams for fear of their parents in assisted living facilities that they couldn't see. And I'm talking about white shoe grizzled Wall Streeters. And these individuals opened up as humans for a moment. And when I started my research, which was the culmination of competing in the new world of work at the peak of the pandemic, 2,000 executives working with me in small group discussions around what is the future of work in a post-pandemic world, what I wanted to make sure is we did not go back to work ever again. We wanted to go forward. to work. And this vulnerability is a piece of it. And the intimacy dinners is a piece of that. But you can do it virtually, by the way. I'm bringing that up purposefully because i can move a team virtually better than they than they were on their own physically so i'm very upset when i hear leaders and i had a chance to to be at a party a couple weeks ago with elon musk actually got reported on uh rather prominently uh right after selling a lot of
1: stock when you were with him keith just as no he wasn't i I think he He sold a billion dollars of stock that day
0: i know but that that was a party when, where he reported that Sergey was there as well, and there was all oh, right, right. Yeah. But um, but I was at this party, and look, I mean, this is a man who is brilliant, right? I mean, I don't think anybody could contest that. The most important thing, though, to recognize is he's made this assumption about physical versus remote work. When in reality, he's hybrid too right? The reality is that all organizations that have multiple facilities are hybrid. All organizations that have multiple floors in their headquarters are hybrid because you're not always co-located and working interdependently with the people that you need to collaborate with. And we need to be overemphasizing how do we work in an asynchronous and hybrid world? How do we stop working in meetings as the primary form of collaboration? How do we shift that meeting to collaborating outside of meetings so even more people can be involved more abundantly and so I can actually prove that in a physical environment I can in a a hybrid environment I can improve innovation better than in a physical environment because the practices have become lazy in a physical environment as well we need to be much more proactive at how we coach our teams
1: so a couple things there to just parse through because uh, um, first you talk a lot about chat rooms and about breakout rooms on Zoom and how helpful they are to allowing for those smaller groups to have trust and confidence to be able to speak up. And as someone who's lived off on Zoom for two plus years, we don't use breakout rooms at Walker and Dunlop. And so reading that opened up my mind to sort of saying there's a tool here from the pandemic. We're on it right now that can actually go into the forward to work environment that can actually create an environment for fantastic collaboration, trusting and innovation. Yeah.
0: Let me, let me give you, I will give you some real time coaching. I want you to re- re-engineer your upcoming staff meeting in the following way. How long is your typical staff meeting? Uh, 55 minutes. Okay. And how many people show up at it? Eight. All right. So I'm going to make a recommendation that you could do a two hour staff meeting that is broken up between the eight people that you would normally have and perhaps 25 people total that are the L2s that are really getting shit done around the world. (laughs) Not that the eight aren't, right? But if you're really thinking about who's touching the transformation, right? Now, I say that, and, and, by, and what's great about a two-hour time swath is that you can take your agenda items in a hybrid world, and this is going to be a Zoom meeting. You can take your agenda items and decide who's at what portion by the snap of a finger. You could have a meeting with your eight, snap your finger halfway through, half of an hour into the meeting, and you can have a 20-minute agenda item with 25 people, right? And then you can move on. So we can sparse, and we, once we decide, the first thing I want you to do when you come in is do an energy check-in which is where is your energy these days? If you've got all 25 people on the call, do it in chat and and let them share with each other where they are right now, where their struggles are, et cetera, and open up that empathy, right? If you have your eight people, do a sweet and sour so that everybody goes around and touches base with, you know, what is going on right now with your life, sweet and sour. And I want you to start with whatever is the most vulnerable share that you could have. Then I want you to move to something that I call a bulletproofing. By the way, this is all coming out in an article that if you search my name in Harvard Business Review, you'll see a ton of articles in HBR, but it's about to be released on August 25th. I don't know when all of this is airing today, but on August or when you happen to be listening to it, but on August 25th, there's a piece in HBR that's coming out on this very topic. How do you recontract your team in a a hybrid world? So the next piece you're going to do is bulletproof. Have somebody on your team who has some project they've been working on, give a five minute, what I call an agile update. It's five minutes and it's, here's what I've been working on. Here's what I've achieved. Here's where I'm struggling. And here's what I'm planning to do in the next, whatever week, month, whatever the sprint is of the next chunk of work. So they they present that. And then everybody snaps their fingers and you go to breakout rooms and you open a Google doc. If you resume your map, maybe Google versus Teams where you open a SharePoint document, I don't care. And in that is a column, three columns and the breakout rooms are great rooms of three. And in three columns, column number one is what challenges do you have for that person who just shared? What innovations do you want to offer or new ideas? And is there anything you want to offer support or help? They talk for 10 to 15 minutes in the breakout room, add into the Google doc. Now, if you want to make it very short, they talk for five minutes. But then everybody who's been in there, tell them to hold a half of an hour of their time outside the meeting to go back in and fill in more. And by the way, you could even have launched this exercise outside of a meeting. The five minute report out could have been a video. You could have sent it to 25 people without a meeting. They could have each watched it independently. They could have each gone in and add their input. And you never had to have a meeting. Now I could keep going down the list of the things that I think you should be doing, but I'm giving you ways to rethink the way you work. We need to do with this thing I called meeting shifting where meetings are no longer the primary form of our collaboration. We can become much more inclusive. And here's the thing. I'll end with this. The average meeting of 12 people have only four people think that they were heard in this case, everyone's heard and everyone's input and the tapestry of their input is right there. And so on this virtual versus physical you also
1: are very straightforward in saying that in physical meetings, there is a chemical social that chemical bond in your body that chemical you engage bondage. with somebody. And so you're not saying just stay virtual and nope. take that meeting to a four out of five. You're also saying, but one of the things I, I've heard you say, Keith, is that when you're there in person, potentially forget the agenda and focus more on the personal, correct?
0: Exactly. So what you want to index for, so I call this the collaborative stack. The collaborative stack says you got to get good at physically using your time together to the highest value. So when you're in physical together, you want to be indexing to the emotional, indexing to the things that tug on emotions, bonding, celebration, gritty issues you want to get pissed off at each other about, right? When I used to be stressed with an associate, my former CEO of Deloitte and now board member, Greg Seal, would always say to me, Keith, got to go have a long, slow dinner with him. Gotta go have a long, slow dinner. And the long, slow dinner is you gotta break bread, gotta be in front of them. If you're pissed off at somebody, you gotta, you gotta have a long the worst case is you're pissed off at somebody you text them. (laughs) So we all know that. So in the physical meeting, you over-index for the emotion. Then you go all the way up to asynchronous. Asynchronous collaboration, we're talking about the collaborative stack again. The asynchronous collaboration is what you do when you want broad inclusiveness, when you want more innovation, more ideas right? You want everybody's voice to be heard. You want to be inclusive. Then you go to hybrid or I'm sorry, then you go to remote, which is synchronous, but virtual. It's easier to get real candor and insights with breakout rooms and dialogue, et cetera. I can make it through a one day agenda in about two and a half to three hours virtually by using ver- breakout rooms. The pace is fun and exciting. Doesn't mean that I don't do bonding. Like I said, I've got a, sh- I can show you a I have it here somewhere, I could show you a graphic where during the pandemic, we had longitudinal data on teams, what what their data was like when they were physically engaged and then what what they were like when they were remote and virtual. And we were able to move collaboration, innovation, relationship, candor. We were able to move all the scores higher by being intentional about the practices. What problem was we were not back in the physical work world. We never did personal professional check-ins in the middle of a meeting you know, that stuff was marbled into the organic nature of physical work, but not even done that well. Like I said, the average relationship score was 2.8 on a scale of zero to five. I can get it to a 4.4 4 with purposeful remote bonding. Now I could even get it higher and more intimate with physical long, slow dinners. So you work the collaborative stack and I'm so upset, but the And God bless the HR people out there because it's very difficult for them right now because what they're doing is they're so struggling with this policy challenge. Stop talking about the policy. It doesn't matter. What matters are the practices. I don't care if you've decided two days, three days, five days. I don't give a damn. Let's reinvent the practices of work. That's what we need to do. Reinvent the practices, not the policies. So
1: there are a number of And then when you talk about asynchronous collaboration, Keith, you know, at the beginning of the book, you talk about a number of things that
0: came out. Are we talking about competing in the new world of work? We are. We are. Okay, got it.
1: Although, although in my mind, I, all the stuff I read on you is all melded together. I can't, I can't, I can't. By the way, this
0: really, I have to say, this is one of the, one of the most well-informed and prepared interviews that I've given. And I really appreciate you for that deeply.
1: I, 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 I quite honestly appreciate all that you have written and talk about. So one of the things about crisis agile versus enterprise agile. And when I read what you wrote about crisis agile, I sat there and said, okay, GM retooled a manufacturing line to make ventilators that they never made before. Makes sense. Crisis forced them to do it. Unilever went from never making hand sanitizer in the United States to getting up a whole line and
0: creating. And, And they did it in literally a tenth of the time they've ever launched a new product,
1: right? Exactly. And so then you go on to talk about Dow Chemical. And the fact that Dow Chemical was able to go from basically a human-to-human sales channel to a digital
0: sales channel during the pandemic, which will never go back. They were able to increase the cycle time and the touch points. Um, Doesn't mean that they won't now do physical. And I was just literally just talking to the chief revenue officer a couple weeks ago as an update. And the point is that they carried all of those best practices forward and added them to now what they're getting back to, which is more physical engagement. But they're but they're reshifting what's done where. But you were about to land the question. Yeah. Here. So the,
1: the the question is this: going from crisis agile to enterprise agile during the crisis, because the sales force at Dow was required to engage digitally because they couldn't see them physically, there was a reason for them to adapt it. But my assumption would be that there were Dow salespeople who had client relationships that were being paid to maintain those relationships that because of the crisis got to some degree disintermediated. And so my, my question for you is, I get wanting to take crisis agile into enterprise agile, but when we go to enterprise agile without the quote unquote excuse of a crisis, How do you still allow for those changes to happen?
0: Yeah. So uh, do you know who Frank Blake is? I don't. Um, Frank Blake was the former CEO of Home Depot. And I'm writing a new book right now on a lot of the work that we do on high-performing teams. Ironically, we've been in this business of coaching teams for 20 years, and I've never written a book on it. Part of it is, to be honest, is I, I believe a lot of what we teach is a bit of a special sauce that competitively, I don't think other... Coaches are doing what we're doing with teams. So I, I, but I realized that was just ridiculous and it was not abundant thinking. It was narrow minded on my part. So we're now writing this book. And I was interviewing Frank Blake the other day and I learned so much from Frank. I'm interviewing great leaders who have achieved great success to tease out of them what I'm calling the social contract that they inherently live by with their teams. So there's one social contract that is like, you know, a team member feels, I'm not going to challenge my peer, that would be throwing them under the bus in front of the leader. That's a social contract that exists in a lot of teams. There's another social contract that says, I'm going to be the first one to trust my instinct and challenge my peer because I love them so much, I'm not going to let them fail. And by the way, just by virtue of challenging them doesn't mean I disrespect them, not as it even, nor does it mean that I expect them to take my advice, but I owe it to them to give it to them. Right. So that's a different social contract. So the answer, Willie, is the social contracts that we live by need to be reengineered. And what's fun about this is that in our research, this is very programmatic. It is shocking how simple this is. If I took your staff meeting and reengineered it with these simple practices, we have now researched these high return practices of agile. We're talking about enterprise agile. You know, I don't know, Willie, if whether or not your six leaders show up reporting to your executive team in agile sprints. So what are the critical projects? What are the six hills that your organization is working on to transform your business? Each of those hill owners needs to show up in front of their peers reporting quickly what they've been doing, where they're struggling and where they're going. And then they need to have the crap beat out of them in healthy and lovely and caring ways by their peers to what I call bulletproof or stress test the next level of sprints that's not how most that's not most team social contract right right so working in these agile sprints changing the way we sell at Dow it's a renegotiation of work practices this is why i and damn it I was like so upset by this when at the beginning of the pandemic I was like okay I've been studying hybrid work since 2010. You go to HBR. You've
1: been been writing on this stuff since 10 and you, you worked with Cisco. One of the things I was going to ask you, just a quick one, how did Cisco miss this? Like I read all the stuff you did with them. You were in there with John Chambers. They were the ones who should have, they should have had Zoom on steroids and they completely missed it. How
0: could Cisco have missed this? Well, it had Zoom. It was called WebEx and the technological um stasis at the time was was it was you know look we all have a challenge where the historical companies and i do a lot of work with unicorns right and so unicorns come along and they look at a business model and they look at the technology stack of a big competitor and they look at them and like i could disrupt that from scratch and guess what they could you use aws tools use MongoDB database tools, you use all these different things. And now you can create from scratch at a fraction of the cost, a disruptive tech stack that beats a company that's been around a hundred years and has cobbled those systems together in legacy systems, right? So very difficult to disrupt yourself, but that, but Eric, you did. And guess where he came from? He came from Cisco, it. right? He was in the WebEx team. I knew him when he was there and, and right. he's, he was a fan of my first book, Never Eat Alone. And And I so I, I knew him. It is very difficult to disrupt yourself, and it doesn't mean that it's not possible. In fact, it's a whole separate conversation of how one goes about disrupting yourself. And I'll tell you it is only possible using this new disruptive system that I'm talking about, this co-elevating system where the team says, "Damn it, you know, this we are going to be disrupted." And we knew, do need to, because the voices are there. Eric Yoon, when he was at Cisco, wasn't heard he believed what he believed and i guarantee you he was trying to make the changes there but what could make him heard is hybrid work practices that are more inclusive and invite more than your six people on a staff meeting into your disruptive conversations i want the top 15 i want the next 2 the 200 however many people are in the company i want them co-creating and involved
1: so on, on on radical adaptability which is how you term a lot of this is yeah, it what i
0: sort of bundle it all as yeah it's radical, radical
1: adaptability one of the things you talk a bunch about is vulnerability and you you cite Brene brown and talk about vulnerability leading to creativity and innovation and one of the things that Brene brown talks about is the fact that trauma kills vulnerability and as i talk about diversity and inclusion at walker and dunlop as well as on a call yesterday with harvard business school um, I talk a lot about the fact that at companies, we need to be able to create safe environments for minorities to show up as their complete self. And if you don't create a safe environment, they're being traumatized and therefore they cannot bring their creativity and their innovation and in framing D&I in that manner as also having distinct viewpoints on issues that get to that creativity and innovation. It's interesting to me, Keith, how many people's eyes kind of open up and say, okay, you mean diversity and inclusion is actually really good for innovation and creativity, not necessarily just doing the
0: right thing. Oh gosh. Yeah. Well, that data has been proven. That data has been proven that more, and I see it every day in the teams I coach more diverse inputs more inputs from a diverse population of roles as well as demographic diversity, all of those things yield a more rich tapestry of solutions. It just makes sense and it's all been proven, right? The you said something very powerful. Trauma inhibits vulnerability, which 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 inhibits relationships. And this is where my youngest son is self-identified African American. He's 50% Black and 50% Mexican. He identifies as black. And I have said to him, I said, listen, sweetie, prejudice is going to hold you back. And he's like, damn right. He's a very angry child. And I said, the biggest prejudice that's going to hold you back is the same prejudice that held me back for many years. And it was the prejudgment that other people wouldn't accept me for who I am. And our trauma keeps us from people. Our trauma assumes that we'll be hurt. Our trauma as minorities, and I'm not, there's all different types of minorities happen to be one flavor of of a minority. And the trauma of minorities yield a fear of connectedness in many instances. I had this conversation with Hillary Clinton many years ago when she was running for president. I said, Hillary, the you that showed up in that New Hampshire diner booth where you broke down in tears. Was the you that the country needs to see, in order to have you in the presidency? And if we don't see that, nobody saw the Hillary Clinton that I saw when I was on Air Force that she was on. It wasn't called Air Force One when I was there, but when she would sit in her stocking feet, cross-legged, chatting with—I anyway, know I just pissed off a bunch of people who hate the Clintons, but um, you know, particularly maybe folks down on Wall Street. But I'll tell you, this was a this was an authentic caring woman that I got to know that the population did not get to know. And, and that cost her the election. um, Fundamentally, and it's it's going to cost any of you your success as a leader.
1: And when you talk about creating safe environments, you you cite Amy Edmondson's research at Harvard, which talks about psychological safety in four dimensions. Um, Let me run through them quickly and have you just jump on which is the most important. So when it's permissible to make mistakes, number one, when sensitive topics are openly discussed, number two, when team members are openly willing to help one another. And number four, when differences among team members are welcome, that is when team members feel free to be themselves.
0: Yeah, they're all important. And and I sat with Amy recently at Harvard when I was, I was the speaker uh, at the reunions recently. And um, that's, that's where I listened to you for the first time. (laughs) Oh, wow. Awesome. And I had, uh, I I love that day that Scott, you know, Cook, who, you know, is just one of my dear friends and mentors was with me. What a blessing. But I I sat with Amy and had a chance to to really talk to her. And I'm really excited now because she and I are going to work on some things together around how does psychological safety change in a remote and hybrid environment? All of those things you just mentioned are true and needed, and they can be engineered purposefully into a remote and hybrid environment. Um, and that's what I'm excited about teaching the world around and yeah, boy, Willie, I got to tell you, I'm, 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 I'm thrilled that we've had this opportunity to meet and hopefully we can, we can do it offline. Are you in Boston?
1: No, I'm in Denver right now. Oh, nice. I I live in Denver, although Walker and Delos headquartered back in Bethesda, Maryland.
0: I don't know if you know him or care for him, but one of my dear friends is John Hickenlooper, your Senator, former governor.
1: One of my best friends. He was in my house two days ago.
0: Are you serious? Yeah. All right. Well, tell John. I'm literally texting him constantly. He and I are reinventing the foster care system in Colorado. So as soon as we're done, here, I'll send a picture. As soon as we're done, reach out to him. But I am deeply committed, as is he, to doing the right thing in the foster care system. Anyway, let's you and I spend some more time together. You know, I understand. Here we go. I'm taking a picture. <laughs> He gets,
1: he gets all these. He, he, uh, it's great. Hick it, it is an amazing leader and had a big role in this most recent bill that got through and played kind of shuttle diplomacy to get Manchin uh, onto it. So the, the, the final thing, Keith, that I just want to ask you before we close out for the hour, and I'm greatly appreciative of your time, is that when you talk about the ethos of co-elevation, you talk about empathy and generosity and candor, getting groups to expand their boundaries and your concept of asynchronous work I think is so important because Mm -hmm. I think that many leaders, as we, if they are thinking about back to the office rather than forward to work, they're going back to the meeting starts when I show up and the meeting is my agenda. And of all the things that I took out of your book, which was a lot, one of the things that I sat there is and asked myself is how can you flip that dynamic? How can you make it so that everyone on the team feels like he or she is just as responsible for the agenda and the creativity that goes on as mm-hmm. the leader of the team or the CEO of the company. Mm-hmm. And you give some points in it as it relates to how you can broaden that so you get this asynchronicity moving forward. And so mm-hmm. as a final comment in well, our hour. So I, just- I
0: think there's two things there and I'll give you two t- quick tips. Number one, stop thinking that collaboration equals a meeting. Collaboration and meetings are not interdependent. Meetings are a portion of collaboration, but they're not the first either. We need to be collaborating significantly more in an in a non meeting format that's when I was telling you you give a five minute video and then a hundred people comment on that video that's a better inclusion than if you had a hundred people in a meeting, even twelve people in a meeting so shifting from synchronous meetings to asynchronous meetings asynchronous collaboration then the second piece you're talking about. And this is really what I try to do. But that book had 2000 executives, 2000 executives committed to not going back to work in the same way we did, but going forward. This is a crowdsourced set of insights from some of the most inspiring and future looking executives I've ever met. And we co-created this together during the two years of the pandemic. And it's a, it's a must read for just that reason you've got to learn from these folks. And, and I learned so much from these folks. The biggest thing was shift the social contract. Your social contract of your team is broken. We spend too much time talking about leadership. I don't think you've ever heard anybody say that we spend too much time talking about leadership. We do not spend enough time talking about teamship. And I want to give you a new model to do that in a more efficient way, using the tools we have available to us today.
1: We'll end it on that. I'm so appreciative of your hour and your time. It's been a real thrill. I love all you write. Anyone who hasn't read his books, go buy Keith's books. Don't wait for the HBR synopsis to come out. There's so much good stuff in the book. that It's it's well worth the read. Thanks, Keith. Have a wonderful day. And everyone, um, I'll see you back next week. We have the head of the Motion Picture Association, Charlie Rivkin on the webcast next week to talk about Charlie's career and what's going on in the media and entertainment business, which will be a lot of fun. Thanks again, Keith. Have a great day.
0: Truly my pleasure.